All right, Mark. Let's first, before we get into chapter 9, let's go to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles. Also, uh, if you do not have one, we have plenty more copies of our current journal. If you would like one, just raise your hand and we'll frisbee it, I mean hand it to you, and uh, you'll be able to join us on that. If you would like to take notes in here, I would encourage you to turn with me to page number 53. That will be a page that works with this week's sort of content, and that's a blank space for you to put whatever you may want. In Mark chapter 10, and we're not going to land there for tonight, but in Mark chapter 10, we encounter one of the most famous interactions that Jesus ever has. In fact, this is one of those interactions that is not as perhaps dramatic as a miracle story, It's not as profound as one of his sayings in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's not one of those healings or any of those things. But this moment is so important that I have found it in every one of my children's storybook Bibles. And what's interesting is when you read through a storybook Bible, you know how these work. You've got 100 pages, 50 pages, 10 pages, however many pages, and it selects some of the more famous stories. And these are the ones that little children, when they become familiar with the words of God, they begin to become familiar with the stories of God. This is one of the stories that's always there. It's almost like it's an important story. And so I want you to look with me for just a moment at Mark chapter 10, as a way of setting up the rest of the text that we're going to look at tonight. But Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13 through 16, this is where Jesus invites children to him. And we're going to read it, and then we're going to go back in time to chapter 9 and walk through some selection of scriptures that I think will help us understand this section even better. So Mark chapter 10, verse 13, begins this way. People were, begin, or were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. By the way, you remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the touch of Jesus. He's always touching people, always welcoming. But the disciples, notice this, the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. Have you ever seen an indignant person before? Don't point fingers, but my sister, Megan, she's, uh, she's a couple years older than me. She, was, she had the most perfectly indignant face when she got upset about something. It was fantastic. Which, as a good younger brother, it, I saw it as my job to ensure that she was very good at practicing her indignant face on a regular basis. And this was back in the early 90s. Some of you may remember the old sitcom, Full House. You've got the Tanner family, and there's that one little moment. One of the daughters, Stephanie, whenever she'd get upset about something, she'd go, how rude, you know, in this sort of overly dramatic way. And my sister Megan could do it, could do it better. And so this is a moment where Jesus puts on his how rude face to his disciples, and he says, let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them, 
for the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God belongs to such as these. 15, I tell you the truth, anyone, by the way, if you like marking in your Bibles, that would be one just a circle right there. He says, anyone, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little children will never enter. You say, well, that's negative. Yeah, but the opposite is true because then anyone who does receive the kingdom of God like a little child will receive it, meaning it's open to all. And then he ends in verse 16 with this. And Jesus took the children. Notice this, I love this. You can just envision the little cartoon Jesus, right? The little cartoon one. He's got the white with the red sash, or maybe it's a blue sash because it's Wednesday and he wears blue on Wednesday. I don't know, but he's got a little child in his arm. This is the picture, verse 16. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and he blessed them. I was thinking this week, boy, I would love to be blessed by Jesus. Now, let me be very clear. I have been blessed by Jesus. Have you been blessed by Jesus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But do you notice there is a prerequisite to being blessed by Jesus? And here's the prerequisite. If you want to be blessed by Jesus. In other words, if you want to experience the full life, the John 10 life that says, I have come, that they, who's they? All of us, all people, that they may have life and have it to the full, like a cup just flowing over. That's the kind of life. If you want that life, he says, I want to give you the prerequisites for a blessed life. And it comes down to this little word that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 48, and it's this word. Are you ready? We have to be childlike. We have to be childlike. Now, the problem is, and, and, and no one in this room, but you know people who are not childlike, rather even though they may be Christian, maybe go to church, maybe they're involved in things, they're not childlike. They are simply child. Now, don't point to anyone, but you could raise your hand. Do you know anyone who, who maybe, well, let's just say they act a little childish in their face, faith. Anyone? Really? This is unfortunate. Okay, this is going to be a more challenging, <laughs> difficult lesson because I'm going to have to describe to you what these people look like since we've never seen them before. I must be. Man, I, I just want to tell you, thank you for letting me come to the Holy Land. Where, where, where we just, man, this is just good. Well, let me then just try to, so let, me, let me explain what childish looks like. Since we don't know what that means, let me just explain it. The difference between a child or childlike and childish, let's just talk about kids for a moment. Uh, you've never seen a childish Christian, that's okay, but have you ever seen a child who is behaving in a childish manner? Mm, yes, no, yes, okay. What would a childish child look like? What's an example of a child? We might call this child poorly behaved. What would that look like? It's mine. Mm-hmm. A- anyone else ever see a child who, you know, mine, mine, mine. It's like the little birds in Finding Nemo. Mine, mine. That, okay, that's a younger person reference, sorry. But anyway, 
So you have, you have it, it's all about mine, it's my stuff. Uh, childish, have you ever seen a child drop to the floor kicking their feet? A little tantrum, I don't get my way, I'm going to let you know how I feel about that. Now that's childish. Jesus is not saying if you want to inherit the kingdom of heaven, you become like that. We, we got enough of that in this world, don't we? He says you become childlike. Childlike is very simply defined. Well, let's just define it the way Jesus does. I want to give you three things that show us the difference between a childish faith, one that will not be blessed in the way Christ is describing, and a childlike faith. And it doesn't matter our, our actual age. What matters is where we are in walking with Jesus. You can become a child even at 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. It's never too late. Become more childlike. So, let's walk through this and I want to show you. Here we go. This is Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. It starts by saying, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Now, let me just explain what's happening and what we're going to see. Jesus is leaving the northern part of Palestine. Um, I didn't give myself room, so we're just going to kind of do it kind of small here. But you basically have Palestine. You've got here. You've got the Mediterranean Sea. You have uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's not a circle, but that's what I'm drawing it as. You then have the Jordan River and down here the Dead Sea. About this part down, you have Judea. Here is Galilee. These are both predominantly Jewish areas. To the north of the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River continues up, and Jesus and his disciples have been up here in a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is chapter 8. Who do people say I am? You're the Son of God. Yay, rah! Then they go up onto the Mount of Transfiguration, which most likely was right here. Caesarea Philippi was built out of the base of Mount Hermon, and that is where we believe Jesus probably took Peter, James, and John for the Mount of Transfiguration. This is that beautiful moment where three of the twelve witness the peeling back of the flesh of Jesus, and they see his divinity pouring out. While that is going on, there is a dispute happening where some people brought a little boy to Jesus, a father did, and this boy is demon-possessed. Will you heal my son? The disciples say, sure, but they can't. Jesus and his three amigos come down the mountain. They find out what's going on. Jesus heals the little boy. They say, why couldn't we? He says, this one only comes out by much prayer. Remember, that's the context. Now, after that, Jesus begins his long trek. Six months is the time that it'll take from him going where he is there to eventually dying on a cross in Jerusalem. Now, it doesn't take him six months to travel that distance, but it takes him six months of teaching his followers, preparing them for that moment that's coming in chapter 15. We're not there yet. But he begins his trek down from Caesarea Philippi, and they go over into Galilee. And then they work their way to a place called Capernaum. Now, we have, we have talked about Capernaum a number of times. But they are in Galilee, and they're making their way to Capernaum. This is what happens. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was what? Teaching his disciples. He has ended, effectively, his public ministry and is now focusing on his private ministry 
preparing them for what is to come. He said to them, the Son of Man, that's just a nickname he uses for himself from an Old Testament prophecy in Daniel, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what Jesus meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So he's making the trip. Notice now they come to Capernaum. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in Notice this word. It's kind of an important one. We'll come back to it. The house. When they were in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So evidently, as they traveled these 25 some odd miles, there's a little argument that breaks out. And so Jesus says, hey, what were you guys arguing about? Have you ever seen a group of people who didn't want to answer a question? This is that moment. Have you ever had a child who did something that he or she should not do and you're like, Johnny, did you do this? And Johnny just kind of goes, hmm. Johnny doesn't say anything because you can't get in trouble for what you don't say is the thought. What were you arguing about? But they kept quiet because on the way, notice this, they had argued about who was the greatest. The first difference between child and ish faith and childlike faith, we might, and there's different ways we could describe this, but we might simply put it this way. It's all about me. Childish faith is about me, what God can do for me, what the church can do for me, what Christians can do for me. It's all about me. I'm the greatest. I'm the biggest, I'm the baddest. Now, here's the question. Why did this particular conversation happen at this point? What happened in chapter 8? Jesus didn't take all 12 of his followers up on the Mount of Transfiguration, did he? Peter, James, and John got to go. The other nine, where are they? They're dealing with a mob that's angry. Now, if you were one of the 12, would you also want to know who the greatest is after that little encounter? And then you've got Peter, James, and John who are probably going, guys, guys, don't worry. Jesus loves us all, just us more than you. He doesn't have favorites, but, but if he did, I mean, clearly it would be us. This seems to be the reason for the argument. But notice, they don't want to answer it because as soon as he asks the question, they realize, oh, that's really not something we should be arguing about, is it? So Jesus sits down. Notice verse 35. And we're told that Jesus sat down and called the 12 to him and said, now, by the way, this is just a way of explaining what a rabbi does. In the ancient world, a rabbi, when he would teach, would not stand behind a lectern, but he would sit down. And the disciples would come around him and he would then teach them. And so this is a moment of formal training as if to say class is in session. So you got to know if you're a disciple, you're going, oh, we did something wrong because he's now going to tell us what we did wrong. And so he says this, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. By the way, notice he does not say that it is wrong to want to be great or first. He does not say that. He says, though, if you do want to be great or first, you need to have a different perspective of what that means. And he says, you must become the servant of all. Now, the word servant there is the Greek word diakonos, from which we get our word 
what is the word you think from diakonos? Deacon. A deacon here, by the way, at Clear Creek, we call our deacons special servants because they are servants. That's why. They are the servants to others because we believe that greatness does not come from position but from service. And so if we were to compare it, Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is the childish faith. Childlike faith is not about me. It's about you or others. It's about what I get to do for you, not what you get to do for me. And he continues with this. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, well, before we go there, here's an interesting thing. So sometimes when we think about Jesus teaching, at least when I think about it, sometimes I just assume he's just with his 12 apostles. Maybe a crew of some disciples as well. But you notice, he's not just with them. This is a general audience. There are children present as Jesus is teaching. Do you remember I asked you the question, or I pointed out, it says, he went in the house, in the house in Capernaum? Here's an interesting question. Whose child is this that Jesus brings up onto his lap? No one knows for sure, but... Usually when it refers to Jesus going in the house in the city of Capernaum, we know that Peter lived in Capernaum and had a house there. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law in his house. So we know that Peter is married. Peter is most likely the oldest of the apostles. Many people wonder and have postulated that perhaps this little child is none other than Peter's child. That Jesus says, come here, and he picks this little kid up. He says, if you want to be great, I mean, if you just, look at this little guy. By the way, when I think of Peter's son, I, again, maybe as a daughter, I don't know. But when I think of it, I, I think of a little boy. And because it's Peter, I think of this little squatty guy with like this massive man beard. Now, I know he's, if he's three, that's probably not the case unless he has a pituitary problem, but that's what comes through my mind when I read the Bible. I'm sorry, I am your preacher. So now here's the deal. The word there, the word there for little child is the word paideon. It means a toddler. This is just a little guy that Jesus picks up. He says, if you want to be great, you are going to have to be like a little toddler. Now, what he's saying there, he says, whoever, he says, this is what it looks like. Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. He said, what does that have to do with others? Here's the deal. In the ancient world, because mortality rates were so high, children died very often. Many cases, people would not even name their children until their children were a few weeks, and in some cases and places, until they were a few months or a year old. Why name the child if the child is going to die? This is why in the ancient world, young, young, young children didn't have the same value that we put on children today. And so Jesus, when the disciples in chapter 10, when people were bringing their children, the disciples say, leave them alone. These are nobodies. These are just little people. The important folks are the big folks. Jesus is saying when he grabs this little guy, he says, look, no, 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 no. Childlike, 
You see value in all other people. Here's the reality. I will only esteem those that I think are worthy of honor. I will see others as valuable insofar as I truly think they have value. If you want to have childlike faith, it's not about me. It's about other people. Now, here's what happens next. Let's move on. The second... No, it's good. Hey, we'll just uh, have everyone stand, stretch, do a little calisthenics. We're good. Now, notice what happens next. You can almost imagine as a result of that embarrassment that these guys are going, oh man, he called us out. That you almost get the sense that now we get a moment of justification. Have you ever had someone like call you out on something so you justify what you've done? Or you try to make it better with something? And maybe you've never done this. I certainly have. It's sort of like when I didn't do... Like, Lindsay asks me, go to the grocery. Will you please buy some bread or milk? I get there, I forget what she asked me to buy. So I buy a whole bunch of other good stuff. And I come home and like a little puppy dog, I put it at her feet and I go, pat me on the head. And she looks at me, she goes, good boy, but that's not what I told you to bring. Now here's the thing, I then justify it by saying, maybe I didn't do that, but, but look at what I did do. This is what's about to happen. You have a picture here, I think, of John, one of the apostles, who's like, well, man, he just smacked us and said we shouldn't be arguing about greatness. I know we're still better than some folk, aren't we? Because look at the next thing. This is verse 38. Teacher or rabbi, says John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Aren't we great? We told a, we told a guy who was liberating a demon-possessed person to knock it off. No healing, no helping. And don't you dare use Jesus' name as you're helping other people because he's not in our group. Here's the second childish faith indicator, if you will. I'm just going to put a little phrase here. This is the kind of attitude that says, go away, go away. You're not with us you go, you're not part of our group. You go away. Have you ever heard of a sectarian church? It says, hey, we're the only ones. Everyone else just go away. What's the old joke? You have people in heaven, different sections of heaven for different churches, different groups. You've got one group, man, they're hooping it up. Someone says, who's that? Oh, that's the, that's the Pentecostals. Another one, you've got a group with a guitar. You go, oh, who's that group? Oh, that's the Baptist. You come over and there's a silence, please sign. They say, oh, who's over there? Oh, it's the Church of Christ. They think they're the only ones here and we don't want to ruin it for them. <laughs> now, I don't think that's our family as much today as it used to be. And I'm grateful for it. But childish faith looks for ways to push people out instead of saying, come on in. Here's another way to put it. Childlike faith doesn't say go away. Childlike faith says, let's play. How many of you have watched this with kids? They can be complete strangers with other children, but they enter a room and within five minutes, this is my best friend, this is my best friend, this is my best friend. What are their names, Johnny? I don't know, but they're my best friends. We were at a wedding a few weeks ago and the preacher 
and his wife had a little girl about my daughter's age. I walk in. I'm not making this up. I drop Lindsay and the two children off at the door for the wedding and the reception or the, the, the rehearsal. They go in. In the amount of time it took me to park and walk inside, I come in and my five-year-old daughter has her hand in the hand of this other little girl. They have intertwined fingers. And she goes, Daddy, this is my best friend. I said, who is she? I, I tried not to be quite that, you know, but I was like, who is she? She goes, well, my best friend. I said, what's her name? She goes, what's your name? And she goes, Mimi. And she goes, her name is Mimi. And so they're best friends. Children, when they find other children, they don't ask, what are you for or what are you against? They say, let's just play. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is not suggesting that we have an easy beliefism, that everyone's in, that truth doesn't matter, that all ways lead to God. That's not what he is saying here. Because do you notice what he says? He says, this is happening in my name, Jesus says. So this man, this person has some attachment, affiliation with Jesus. He's just not part of this particular little band of brothers. He affiliates, loves, identifies has some respect for Jesus, he's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And Jesus himself, church, this isn't my opinion, this is our Savior saying this. He says, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against, who? Oh, what does it say? Look, against us is for Here's a way to think about this. Because I know this gets kind of challenging and I don't don't pretend to have this figured out, but just maybe a way to think about it. When it comes to working with other people who love Jesus and identify as Christ followers, here's maybe a, a, a way of thinking about it. In our world, there are national borders. So the United States has a national border, Correct. But then there are also state borders within the United States. So Tennessee has borders. Georgia has borders. California has borders. We have all the... Okay. Jesus is saying he is in... He is speaking in my name. He loves me. We're not going to fight. We're not going to throw stones. We're going to try to find ways to accentuate what we agree on. We have our own state borders that matter to us, correct? Yeah. But let us not confuse state border issues with national border issues. There are some things that we cannot negotiate on as Christ followers, amen? The divinity of Jesus. Is that up for grabs, family? No. Uh, Salvation through faith and the grace of Jesus. Is that optional? No, not at all. That is a national border. But state borders, we are gracious enough and humble enough to say, you know, we may disagree and we may even have vigorous conversations about it, but you love Jesus, I love Jesus, we will agree on what we can agree on, and at the end of the day, I stand before Jesus for myself, and you stand before Jesus for yourself. So we are going to humbly treat one another with grace in the meantime. Does this make sense? 
So one of the things Jesus himself, as he's describing to us what it looks like to be blessed, and think about it, just let's talk logically here. Some of the most angry, bitter people I know are those who think they're the only ones going to heaven. How is it possible to know that Christ loves you and that you're going to be with him forever and yet angry at everyone and about everything? Yet, on the other hand, some of the most joy-filled people I know are those who are ruthlessly committed to Jesus, but ready to partner, when appropriate, with other Christians, even if they don't agree on everything. Does this make sense? Okay? You don't have to agree with me. Just go back and read it. But here's the big idea, childish, childlike. Let's go to the last one here because of time. Actually, hang on. No, I'm going to take two more minutes. This is too much. This is too good. Here we go. Let me just show you one more thing here. Notice what it says here. He goes on to say this. For whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name, again, because of Jesus, and because you belong to Christ, that person will certainly not lose his reward. Continuing on this thought, verse 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, again, just imagine Peter Jr. with a big beard, the little guy held up by Jesus. As he holds this little guy up, he says, and if anyone causes one of these little ones to be- who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. By the way, can you imagine if little Pete... Or the other kids who may be present, they hear this and they hear about Jesus talking about basically whacking someone, you know, just put them in cement and throw them in the river. All these little guys, little Pete goes, can you put me down, please? I mean, this is just a moment. But now think with me. He's using this picture of a child as a metaphor or a picture for all believers. Remember, he has already said, you must become like little children to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So when he says a little one, is he speaking about toddlers or is he talking about Christians? Christians. He says, he's not just talking like, if you, you look, if you make a little toddler stumble, you're in trouble. Think bigger than this. He says, if you cause another Christ follower who is a child of God to stumble, that's a problem. Now, he uses some interesting imagery here. In verse 42, when he says, uh, when he's talking about this, he uses this image of little ones to describe any believer. And I was thinking about it. Um, if you want to make, and, and I think this is probably true of most parents, but if you want to make a parent happy, I know it's true for me, it doesn't matter how you treat me, just treat my kids well. You treat my kids well, you don't really, we don't even have to interact. I would like it, but we don't have to. Because if you show my children love, if you're gracious to them, then as a father, and I know you dads and you moms, you know what this is like. As a parent, you go, hey, if you show respect and love to my kid, that, that pours onto me. You know the passage from Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. There's this interesting little phrase where the Lord God is talking, and he says this about Israel and those who may be opposed to his people He says, for whoever touches you touches the apple of God's eye. 
Now, what is the apple of God's eye? What's the apple of anyone's eye? It's, it's the center of your eye. It's the cornea. And I've got, uh, you know, Bobby back here who is a doctor, and he could tell me more about this. Lindsay's uncle, Daryl Mann, who's here, he, he's an eye doctor. He could tell me more. But, but basically, it's the center part. It's the covering, that little clear center place. It's the center of your eye. Now, notice, God says, if anyone potes, you or touches you or picks at you, that person is poking and jabbing the center of God's eye. It's a poke in your daddy's eye. The truth, that truth is true for us as well. If I am poking and picking and disparaging a child of God, it is as though I'm poking God himself in the eye. How long do you think he will put up with that? Now, by the way, that's really good news. It means that if people are poking you, that God will protect his children. Amen? And he certainly will bring justice at the end times for all his children who are poked. But you remember in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4 when God comes, Jesus comes to Paul of Tarsus on the way to Damascus and he's knocked back because of the bright light and he hears the voice and the voice of Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he's like, wait a minute, I've never met you, Jesus. How could I persecute you? What is he saying? That when you mess with my kids, you're messing with me. Church, one of the things that is so important is that we show charity and grace to one another because I desperately don't want to poke my daddy in the eye. Do you? And I want so much for the church of Jesus Christ to be known throughout this city as a place of charity, of grace, where we are childlike that says, hey, we are gracious to one another. We will assume the best. We will then expect the best. But this is what it means to go from being childish of assuming the worst to childlike, which is expecting and assuming the best. Does this make sense, what Jesus is saying here? Okay, let's move on here. The last and final thing he says, and we get this picture, he says in verse 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If it, it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. Now, by the way, uh, do you, in your text, have verse 34 right there? In mine, it's verse 43, and then there's no verse, verse 30, or 44, sorry, not 30, but 43, 44, 45. I have 43 and 45, but no 44. Are you missing 44 in your Bible too? Okay, if it's not there, it's in the footnote. And what you're going to see is in some manuscripts, there is this repeated refrain in, in verse, excuse me, in verse 44, 45, and 46. It is a quote from Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet. And if you look at your footnote, if it's not there in the main text, what it says is, there worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he says, it is better to go into eternal life maimed with, then with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out, the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Real cheery words from Jesus with a bunch of kids around. Verse 45. 
And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then finally, he says this, verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You say, how in the world is this childish to childlike? Here it is. Are you ready? Childish faith excuses sin doesn't take it seriously allows things to be habitual or ongoing doesn't address it doesn't deal with it but childlike faith and this is a harsh word but are you ready for it is willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of sin including amputate sin childlike faith says i will do whatever it takes to be like my daddy Growing up, all I ever want to be was like my daddy. My dad is still my hero to this day. I want to be like my dad. And I remember I would, when I was pretty young, I would go in and I'd find some of my dad's clothes and I'd put his clothes on and it looked hilarious. In fact, my dad was a, he owned an advertising agency and he still has a photograph of, of a photo shoot where, and I don't even remember what the reason was, but I was the prop. I was the model because I was free. And so they brought me in. They dressed me up in Grown up clothes, this is back in the early 80s, so they still, some people wore hats, sort of like the old Clark Kent going to work hat. And I had a briefcase, and this is just draped off of me. I looked like an absolute goober in this picture. But I loved it, because I was like, I'm like my daddy. I want to be just like him. Here's the thing. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, childlike faith says, I'll do whatever it takes to be like my daddy. It, it, it may be hard, maybe may be uncomfortable. I'm going to do it. I want to be like my daddy. My comfort is less important than that I'd be like my father. My desire is less important than I'd be like my father. Now, let me be very clear. Jesus is not saying we ought to actually cut off our hand, pluck out an eye, lop off a foot, correct? Okay, hide the knives, everybody, because no, that's not what he's saying. What he is, now, now, some people took it literally. In fact, uh, one of the early church fathers, a, na- a man named Origen of Alexandria, took this literal, and because he struggled with lust, he castrated himself because he thought that was the only way to do it. Is it possible, yes or no, for a person to be maimed and yet still have dirty thoughts or go bad places or do bad things? Yes. The point Jesus is saying be ruthless with your sin. You say, boy, that's such a gross image of chopping off body parts. Here's Jesus' point. Sin is gross. We don't see it that way sometimes, but it is gross. And you say, well, yeah, but in fact, it's so gross. Do you know the word that he uses for hell here? It's the Greek word Gehenna. Have you heard that word before? Gehenna is a place, it's an actual physical place southwest of Jerusalem. You can go there today. It's still, it's not the same as it was. But it was a valley, a deep ravine called the Valley of Henan. About 700 years before Jesus, there were some wicked kings of Israel down in Judea, one named Ahaz, and they began wicked pagan practices of sacrificing their children on an altar to the god Molech. They burned their children alive. 
This lasted for many, many years until King Josiah, a young king, comes, abolishes the practice. And as a way of deterring it from ever happening again, he says, you know, that place, that horrific valley, we're going to backfill it. That's now the new city dump. Bring all the junk. Bring everything. We ain't, that is all it's good for. And so for centuries, it became this place where it would just be a burning trash heap where new trash was brought on. It would be burned down where the fire never dies, where worms eat the garbage. And by the time Isaiah came along in chapter 66, it begins to be a picture used to describe the place of complete separation from God, hell. Until finally in the day of Jesus, they would point and they would speak of the separation of God as being like Gehenna. A place where there's always fire, torment, gnashing of teeth. It's outside the city. It's away from people. It is just a stinky, nasty place. By the way, we talked about this a few months ago, but just by way of reminder. One of the names given to the devil is Baal Zebub. It basically means Lord of the Flies. What do you find in trash dumps? It's a way to poke fun at the devil and say, you may be the prince of this world for today, but when you're cast out, you will be nothing more than Lord of the dung heap, the Lord of the flies. And so this is the picture that Jesus describes because he wants us to know what is so important. Now, this brings us back to the very start of this childish childlike and he says don't be this way you be like this you grow up you take steps you do whatever it takes listen your eye represents what you see your hand what you do your foot where you go there are some places friend you do not need to go as a christ follower there are some things you do not need to look at as a christ follower there are some things you do not need to do as a christ follower he says you take it seriously but you by yourself help and work no matter how well we do it can we fix ourselves on our own church no and this brings us back to the very first thing he says in verse 31 where he says the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man why because you and i are destined for a dung heap without jesus christ And the place, I find it so curious, the place that was described as the burning trash pit that began as a place where children were sacrificed to angry gods. Our Savior voluntarily goes as the Son of God to sacrifice Himself to liberate us from that very place. He says, in light of all this, you just grow, you be my child. It's not about trying harder or being perfect. You're my kid, but I want you to grow up. And so what that means, you become the servant to others. Just as I've served you, you serve. Just as I have welcomed the outsiders in to be part of my family, you go out and say to others, let's play. It's not about excluding. Let's try to get as many people into the house of God as possible. Amen? And it's not just about that, but you fight against the sin that I am going to die for, not, to be, not so I will love you, but because I've loved you. And that's what it means to be childlike. And here's the promise, here's the promise. As we become like little children, Mark 10 tells us this. Our Savior will take us in His arms. He'll hold us. He'll bless us. 
Isn't that the life we all want? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the gift of Jesus who turned his face to Jerusalem, who began the long trek to train his followers and to liberate all of us. I thank you that he loves us, that he is the perfect child of God. And he shows us what it means to be good servants to one another, to not seek position but opportunities to serve that he shows us what it's like to welcome the outsiders in and to celebrate every baby step of faith someone else may make and to be so thoughtful and cautious about sin so that we would be able to experience full life with you both now and forever. Lord, may we continue to grow and be more childlike every day. Lord, I thank you for the kids in this room. May we all grow more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.